welcome to today's Entrepreneur Show. My name is Heidi Richards Mooney, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Women in E-Commerce and publisher of We Magazine for Women. And I am delighted. In fact, I'm doubly delighted because this is my second time getting to interview the, our, my next guest. Uh, first time we had a few technical difficulties. So if you watched the first time and you weren't able to watch a replay, well, now you get to do both. So I want let me tell you a little bit about Libby. After nearly 20 years in senior leadership roles in communication at media giants Universal, Sony, and Turner Broadcasting, Libby Gill is now CEO of executive coaching and consulting firm Libby Gill and Company. A sought-after international speaker, Libby was also the PR branding brain behind, behind the launch of the Dr. Phil Show, which I'm hoping we'll get to talk a little bit about today. Libby's award-winning book, You Unstuck, Mastering the New Rules of Risk-Taking in Work and Life, has been endorsed by business leaders, including Zappos, CEO Tony Hesse, and Dr. Ken Blanchard. Her latest book is Capture the Mindset and the Market Share Will Follow, The Art and Science of Building Brands. A former columnist for the Dallas Morning News and the mem a member of the Authors Guild, Libby lives in L.A. and is a proud mother of two fabulous young men who are committed to making the world a better place, just like her, their mom. <laughs> so today... I will discuss your leadership brand and why it matters. Welcome, Libby. Thank you, Heidi. Glad to be here for our reprise. Oh, yes. I, I call it a redo, and I just love it. And I love sharing those kind of things uh, all over social media because sometimes the redo is better than the first time. Uh, and uh, the first time was fabulous. So let's get started. And as I mentioned earlier, you talked about um, how you helped launch the Dr. Phil show. And I think that all of us would like to know about that experience and the part that you and your company played. Well, it was really interesting. I had uh, not long before that left the corporate world and started my own business. So people really knew me for the media public relations branding side. And I was essentially recruited by the chairman of uh, Paramount Television to come in and help launched the Dr. Phil brand because they, uh, you know, he'd been on Oprah for a couple of years already, for actually for four years and was a, a huge hit. Every time he was on Oprah, he was on every Tuesday, the numbers went through the roof, the ratings. And so they decided it was time for him to have his own show. So it was really, it, it seems funny now, but it was getting him off the Oprah page. The Oprah's fans knew him, but there were other people that weren't regular Oprah watchers, believe it or not. And it was introducing him to those potential viewers in a big way. And that big way happened to be a couple of things. We, uh, we went after the cover of Time and Newsweek and were able to secure Newsweek for the week the show launched, which was really unusual because they don't put celebrities on the cover very much. And although print journalism has has fallen a bit over the years with how important the online world is that was a, a big piece of marketing that one could not purchase but worth more than uh, a quarter million dollars and the other thing we decided to do was promote him in the way that movie junkets are done instead of sending dr phil station by station by station out across the country we invited entertainment journalists and news anchors to come to us and we hosted a couple of what are called junkets in the film world and had them come to the studio. And we had places for them to interview him, to do their stand up where they do that news bite in front of the studio. And 
and it worked beautifully. We were able to put multiple pieces in in the can that they could uh, that would be individualized for every station. So it was the, wow. It's kind of taking a putting a twist on the old formula and doing it in new ways. Well, they say that there's nothing new in marketing anyway. Just it's just how you repackage it. But I want to ask a little. I want to talk a little bit more about that cover of Newsweek because that kind of intrigues me. What do you think was the reason that they chose to put him on? I mean, I know he's a doctor first, and then he became a celebrity. But it, do you think there was other? And I'm sure it had to do with all of the things that you did. There was, to preempt them. There was a lot of uh, there's a lot of pitching involved, and of course, in the world of, of public relations, you want things to be seamless and invisible. You don't want them to appear as though there's somebody behind pulling the strings. But the what I had done is what anyone can do. Really, sort of boiled down the core message. And for Phil, it was about this is a show that's going to be different from talk shows we have known. Oprah being the exception. Oprah is Oprah. There's never been anyone, never will be anyone quite like her. But other than that, talk shows were all about conflict and drama and emotion and personal stories and dirty laundry and all that kind of stuff. And it's funny, in Hollywood, you never have to convince anybody that that, that will run out of people willing to share those stories at, because they line up around the block. But this was going to be different. <laughs> this was a, a clinical psychologist who was going to you know, tell it like it is and give people information in a straightforward fashion that they could use. And that after this sort of uh, salacious and dramatic and you know, occasionally uh, bordering on questionable, that was sort of the stock and trade of Jerry Springer and Maury Povich and all of those many shows, all of which I worked on, uh, this was elevating the form, and that was uh, basically the, the the hook, the angle that I gave to Newsweek, and then gave them lots of access to come to the show, interview him, talk to the team, get quotes from Oprah, you know, all of that that made the piece, hey, this is new and different, although at any minute, if there had been a major earthquake or, you know, a bombing or we lost a, a world leader, there went my cover. So there was an element of you do everything you can and then you pray. And it worked out and it was exactly the week that the show premiered. So that was that sent a message of, hey, this is different. You know, there's there's a different kind of show and a different kind of host. And it set the tone and it, it, it happened to be true and authentic. And I don't think it would have had the the resonance had it not paid off in terms of, wow, that's true. This is a really smart guy who's going to, you know, just hit you right, you know, get you right in the forehead with the, his reaction. And that's how the show paid off and has continued to, to be that sort of tone. Well, and he is unlike any other talk show host. He's a lot more, well, he's well-spoken, but he's also more soft-spoken, I think, than a lot of them, too. So he's not that in-your-face. He's probably gotten more in-your-face over the years, but at the beginning, especially, I remember him being, you know, just kind of not unassuming, but he didn't have any kind of airs. He really did try to help people, and I think that that, you know, if you watched a few shows, you knew that, which also, so you were pitching the real yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. And, and, I think and, and also one thing that became a signature element, I, I, I think I'm not sure, but I think I was the first person to point it out to the media. He, he it wasn't overly produced. He was who he was and he had very strong opinions about how to present himself. And in the what we call the walk off, when he walks off at the end of every show, 
as most hosts do, he didn't walk off the stage. He walked through the audience. And as he said at the first, I saw him stop because his wife was in the audience, picked her up. You know, she took his arm and they walked off together. And he later said, well, I was going to just walk in front of my wife as if I'd never met her before. And I pointed that out to a couple of people like, you know, he's just doing his thing. It's pretty, it, not that he isn't smart and thoughtful about his craft, but he's also very authentic and real. And people jumped on that and that became a real signature element. And she became a huge part of the show. Yeah, because you think, you wonder if uh, Jerry Springer is really as crazy in person as he was on his yeah, show. I you was know? there a long time ago. And I have to say that show ran like clockwork. It was very well organized. Yes, the guests were crazy. Jerry used to say it's a circus and I'm the ringmaster. And that was it. But the show itself was very organized, very smooth, very, you know, very professional. But, uh, but you know, we all pick our lane and our style. And, and that was, so, the, you know, those are the opposite ends of the spectrum from Jerry Springer to Dr. Phil. So, so let's talk a little bit about leadership brand, because obviously you helped Dr. Phil and many others with their leadership brand by helping them build their brand, if you will. Um, First of all, why don't you why don't you define what a leadership brand is? And maybe we could talk a little bit about how a company that's small and has doesn't have the audience or the money or whatever, like a, like a Dr. Phil or a Jerry Springer and Oprah, how can they get, you know, the, the kind of a, maybe not the necessarily the kind of but get any kind of media attention? I think especially considering today how it is in the marketplace. That's one of the most difficult things for any company. Well, to first do. of all, I think your brand is aspirational. It's not just where you are, but it is. It should include where you're headed. Not to the point that you step over the line of falsification. You want to be truthful and authentic, but you also want to represent your brand in such a way as as I'm an expert in this, and and this is the direction in which I'm moving. So your brand. And the expressions of it, sometimes people confuse the logo, the website, all of those things. Those are not your brand. Those are expressions of your brand. So it's that your brand expressions are constantly evolving as things move to the foreground, which you're focused on currently, and then things that are not quite as relevant to your business and or your customers, you shift to the background. So it's really about the who am I? What do I, it, three things I tell people to look for and entrepreneurs should think about. And, and even if you've been in business for a long time, it's always worth revisiting. One is what are my skills and strengths? You know, just the basic, what am I good at? Secondly, what are my passions? Because not that everything you do, I mean, when I have to do a spreadsheet, that's not exactly my passion, but that's part of the business. So what are my skills and strengths? What are my passions? And mostly, and this is part people sometimes forget, what does the marketplace want from me? So you have to consider all of those things. And then you look at who you are, what you have to offer, the credibility and skills that you bring to the table, and you really define that value for others. The refining of it is an ongoing process. You are constantly refining the definition of your brand. And then what we think of as branding, you know, ING is the how you articulate that value to your core customer and ideally to your ideal customer or client. 
because there are plenty of people who articulate a message and they always worry, well, if I, if I narrow it down, then I'm going to lose all these people. But in fact, even though it's counterintuitive, you know, you're smiling, Heidi. It's the opposite that's true. You can either be, I'm the dog trainer guy, or you can be, I'm the chihuahua specialist. I mean, to use a silly example, but who's going to find you? Your core ideal clients will find you if you put that label in however way you build language around it. The people that aren't right for you, they're going to go somewhere else. They're going to go to the Labrador guy instead of the Chihuahua guy. You want to make it clear what you do for people and for whom you do it. Then when you get into services and how you deliver either products or services, that goes into the category of in, in what ways do I deliver what I do? I coach, I write, I speak at corporate uh, events, and now I have an online coaching course. So, you know, there are different ways I do what I do. There are different ways that you do what you do. You know, uh, you mentioned about, I, I love how you define the brand and, and the, the expression of your brand. But And the other thing about uh, what does the market uh want from me. I really think that's a, an important key element that a lot of people forget. We're always, and I know I've been guilty of this in the past. I assume what the audience wants without really knowing, and I'm giving them things that maybe they don't want. And usually the proof is in that they don't pay for it or, um, or they don't currently need. But, but first of all, the first question, I, I love the fact that you gave that example about the chihuahua or the dog trainer. The fact is that when you become a specialist, at least in my case, I work with a lot with authors and inventors, but then other people start coming up. Well, by the way, do you, I know you work with authors and inventors, but could you help me? And if they, if I choose, I can. So they don't eliminate you automatically because they know you've got such a good reputation with what you're doing. Same thing, I think, with a dog trainer. If you said you were a specialist in chihuahuas and, and a Labrador person did come to you, you could say, well, you know, I used to train or I'm getting ready to. And you can add that. Absolutely. Wouldn't you agree? That's part of the evolution. Yeah. And if they understand what your programs or how you deliver the value, then they can begin to self-select and say, oh, yeah, I, I see myself in there. Uh, when you say authors and vendors, well, yeah, I, I see myself, well, you know, I'm a speech writer or I'm a, you know, I'm a this or a that. It's pretty close. Could you do that? And that's when your brand begins to broaden. When I first started my business, people knew me in terms of media relations and public relations and branding. And I thought, and more and actually in public relations. And I thought, you know, that's a little narrow for me. And I've done that for 20 years. I'm going to broaden it more to the part that I really enjoy. And that was the messaging and the positioning. So I just put a little twist on it. And the proof was people began to hire me for that. Help me design a website, help me build my brand message, help me develop my materials, help me write a speech. And now it's evolved, it's 15 years now I've been doing this. I can't even believe it. It was like I blinked and 15 years went by. And now I, I know much more for leadership, for working with emerging and established leaders, including business owners and entrepreneurs, but it still can incorporate the brand. How do you identify yourself as a leader, as a business owner, as an authority in your industry? And so it all kind of comes in full circle. So then what would you say are some of the key ways you could identify what, 
who you who your market could be right. or should be. Well, I, I, you you need to ask first. You you can look at your balance sheet and see who's paying you for what. That's a really easy way, and it seems so obvious. But when I start with a new business owner or somebody who's switched from corporate world to entrepreneurial world. And I said, well, you know, where, where do you, where, what are people calling you about? Where do they want you? Well, gee, they want me to consult on this project or they want me to troubleshoot or whatever it is they want you to do. That's where, you know, okay, well, you've got a base there. Now, as you begin to build, you go out and ask them. And I'll give you an example. I'm about to start a webinar series, which is a way for me to, uh, to let my community know what I do. It's a way to get beyond my own sort of group that I've already got to offer more to other people. And I just sent out a newsletter to all, all the people on my mailing list, people that already know me to say, hey, of these five topics, which would you be most likely to listen to? And I got great feedback and, and it was a very clear outcome. So, okay, it's like, I'm gonna start there, then I'm gonna go here. So you need to be surveying either formally or informally, asking people at the end of a project, hey, would you please give me some feedback? I wanna know what worked for you. What would you have liked that I, I might not have offered? What could I have done differently? You need, and sometimes that's hard. We don't always want that feedback. But, you know, there's a great <laughs> quote, I forget who, you know, Henry Ford or somebody who said, uh, one, one bad comment, maybe it was Steve Jobs, one bad comment is worth, you know, a million positive comments. That's where you learn. That's where you say, oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't offer that. Or I made it sound as though I could do that, but it wasn't really covered here. I didn't. That's not my expertise. You know, and you're right. And sometimes people don't want to hear the negative because they don't realize it as a learning opportunity. Um, they And then they get these 99 great reviews and one bad review. And what do you focus good, on? Well, you should focus right? on the bad review. It's painful. Well, you, you do emotionally, you do, but you focus on the good review in terms of oh, not exactly. changing. It's so funny. Um, Would you say? And, and so, so the bad reviews are hold, hold space in your head. But you do, you know, I, I've done this before. I, I know as a professional speaker, when I first started speaking, one of the things they said is when you get an evaluation and, in, you know, in the speaking industry, they really want you to get the evaluations, but they don't want you to look at them right after your program. They want you to wait a while, have some time pass so that you can really absorb what just happened rather than looking at it immediately after. So I learned that at least wait an hour or two. In fact, sometimes I don't even read the reviews oh, till the next oh, day. And that way I could really assess myself before I let other people assess me. And I usually come up with the same conclusions that the people did because I had time passed. Otherwise I focus on all those, oh, she should cut her hair because you know, and then I'll have people say, oh, I love your hair because, you know, it's your trademark, you know, and you just, and that's not it. That's just one example. Others are, she talks too much or goes on and on or doesn't get to her point, but, you know, whatever the case may be. And, you know, you, we always do. It's funny, but. Well, um, and it's hard for people to give negative yeah. reviews. I mean, at a speaking engagement with a room full of strangers, they owe you nothing. They have come in on their own time. And yeah. boy, that can be some groups more than others, a tough crowd. I'm here out of my busy day. Yeah. I, I, you got an hour up there. You know, I, I need to learn something. But sometimes when you come off the stage, you're, you're sort of bombarded with these positive comments because those are the people that approach you. Those are the people that are going to come up and say, oh, Heidi, that was great. That was great. And you also can't you can't put too much 
credit into that because, you know, it's they're not the ones they're not going to walk up and say, you know, you really gave me nothing to think of it. There was nothing new there. Very unlikely you hear that. So you do need to go to those reviews. And I'm with you. I wait a little bit, too. Otherwise, it's it's too personal. It's too you need a little time to reflect. But I've gotten the greatest comments from people who who have taken the time. And I you know, most of the, the evaluations, it's check the box, which I don't you know, are a number. I give away a coaching session just about every time I speak and I have a little card and it invites feedback. People don't have to give it. I, you know, we pull one. They often do. And it's like, well, maybe a little less time on that story, maybe a little more time on this and, you know, a little bit, those kinds of things. And that's invaluable. It is, it is, it is. And same thing with your brand. So let's talk a little bit about some of the steps that a person should take in order to create or maybe refine their brand in the marketplace? Okay, well, the first thing is what I mentioned. You've got to really take stock of what you have to offer. Who are you, what have you got, and what does the marketplace want from you? All right, so once you have identified, and and I'll give you a great example. I worked with a consultant just recently. She's got a site called memorycaresupport.com, and she is a specialist in RN, Longtime specialist in Alzheimer's and memory care. She's a clinician. She's worked inside wow. hospitals for many years. Now, with the aging boomers, there are a lot more people who need advice about my my mom's aging, my dad's aging, my spouse is aging. What do I need to do to prepare? Or my you know whomever is in early Alzheimer's, do I want to put them in a facility? Do we care at home? So she now offers her services clinically to hospitals elder groups, all of that, and also to individuals. So it was really a matter of saying, let's, I I love to do websites with business owners and entrepreneurs. And it's not because I'm a technical person or a designer, but it started because one of my early coaching clients said, hey, you know me better than I know myself. Can you help me with this? And so that homepage, that's your, you know, people call it different things, your sales proposition, your unique sales proposition, your SOP, your value statement, whatever it is, that homepage real estate is that one little paragraph that says, here's what I can do for you. Then, and this, it can be as easy as this. And then the about page, this establishes you as a credible expert in the field. Uh, What are the testimonials you've gotten? What are the awards? What's the training? What are the certifications? What have you done? I mean, you read my, my intro. The companies I've worked for, it's what other experts have said. That establishes you. You've got the same thing. You've got your expertise on that bio page. Then your services. How do you do what you do? And that can, if you're a product person, there they are. There's your retail store online or on Amazon or however you do it. Or it's your your expert services as a thought leader, as a consultant, as a coach, as an author, as a whatever you do and how you do it. Here's my three-month package or my six-month package or my $2 product or my $20 product. So it's really those three things. And then comes all those brand elements like your color palette. What does that say about you? Those are trademark elements, your long red hair. I I agree, keep it. I tell people to keep your your accent. As long as it's yeah. red, I'll keep it. When it starts going white, well, I may change it. What you can do about that, Heidi? Don't know if you know, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know. 
I don't know if I'll ever open a bottle of Revlon, but you never know. <laughs> um, so you begin to look at those things that you identify with. At one point, and this is a, it's a funny example, but I'll tell you the, tr the truth. On my website, when I was sort of early mid stage as a speaker, you know, there was a danger of getting lumped into that, ooh, soft and fuzzy. She can talk about women's issues and work-life balance. Nothing wrong with that, but I have a business story to tell. So I thought, well, I'm going to counteract that. And my website was red and black, and it was in your face. And then as I grew and got a little bit more comfortable and people saw, oh, she's a business speaker. She talks about leadership. She talks about career development. Then it was like, okay, I can go to pastels now that are actually more of my liking. They fit me. They're a little bit more feminine. I don't have to convince anybody that you know I'm a, I'm a credible expert in my field. So those become expressions of your brand personality. You want to give off a tone. And going back to the woman I mentioned, Ann Ellett, with her memory care support, was she wanted to be most of her clients. You were talking about clients want to you got to know who they are and for people who were cared caring for elder parents for in the most case are boomer women they're me they're you they're women who are saying wow my mom's 80 i need to figure out you know how to help her as she continues to age so she wanted to make her site and we decided it should be warm it should be comforting it should be attractive simple now it had to be smart it had to be polished because you you want somebody authoritative helping you with your closest loved ones in a time of need but the color palette was teals and it was sort of the colors i'm wearing right now and if it, it those became her signature colors it's friendly and warm and comforting and you see this picture of this lovely gracious woman and you think wow i could talk to her she's not scary i can pick up the phone and call her and those are all parts of telling that brand story. And there, there are lots of permutations. And you can spend a gazillion dollars tell, getting big companies to tell you these things. Or you can intuitively sort of figure it out and see what works. Or, you know, there's somewhere in between. I love to do this with people that say, ah, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And then it's a matter of question and answer. It's those probing questions about, what do you do and what do people say to you and what do they want you for and, and who's paying the bill who's who's willing to say wow that's well worth the money and and then afterward what was their experience do you turn that into a case study so somebody can say they can look and say oh she works for big hospital groups that's what i do or oh she's you know i can call her about my mom so you you tell that story right. so people can see it's not about you but it's about your audience. It's about your your customer, your client. And it's and you're right. And it, when people are willing to pay you for that, then you know you're yeah. on the right track. Yeah. I think. Um, so let's. You mentioned the the about page. I know we didn't talk about this the last time, but I think it's really interesting. And I think people have a struggle with this. In your opinion, because I think other people may differ. Um, do you think that the about page should be written in the first or the third person? And if that so, comes why? Up a lot. That's really an interesting point. I think it varies and it's probably on the, the tone and the feel of your business. Mine could probably go either way, but for me, mine's in third person. And, and probably because I've done this for a long time, because I've got some experience in history and I've got a team, I don't really want it to sound like it's just about me. I think if you're newer, younger, starting out, and or you want to feel like it's just the two of us, 
I think first person makes perfect sense for that. I always recommend people try it both ways and see what has a better feel for them. Uh, sometimes there's a small business owner that it is not to their advantage that they look like a one man band or a one woman show. You want to feel like, and most of us, even if we are a one woman show, we've got, you know, we outsource, we've got vendors, we've got contractors, we do all of that. And there is some comfort to your customer in thinking, you know, what if she gets hit by a bus? Am I out of luck? And I've asked people that. I've had uh, website folks who were, you know, graphics people. And it's fine in some cases. In other cases, if I, I'm midway through a big website and my guy takes off for a week to Hawaii, I want to know who's the backup person here. So you have to think about the perception. And without misrepresenting, you can shape perception. And that's, that's fair and appropriate. Absolutely. You know, and it's funny because I, I generally um, will advise my clients to write it in the third person. But there have been times, like you said, yeah. uh, artists, for instance, they, it's a conversation you're having with an individual. So for, for me, anytime I work with an artist, even authors quite often, if they're not celebrity type authors, that one, that first person tends to get more reaction from the visitors yeah, I because they feel like they know them personally. Sense. Yeah. Um, and somebody so, like a photographer. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, so there is, yeah. I was just to say, there is no right way, which is what I try to explain to people, even though I think that the, that, as you said, when you're, it, you have to kind of uh, frame it to suit not only you best, but your clientele. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes is that people, you know, they, they tend to make it all about them, not meaning to. They feel like I've got to really explain who I am and they forget. It's, it's about that other guy. It's about the other person. In fact, I've got something for any of your listeners, Heidi, anybody that wants to email me, just Libby at LibbyGill.com. I'll send them my, I've got a little ebook called, 10 stupid things people do to mess up their websites and how to fix or avoid them. And I'm happy to send that out. And it's all of these things. And some are the, you know, they fall into the don't overlook the obvious department. Like don't make the font so teeny that people can't read it. Um, don't do yellow type on green background where, you know, those kinds of things, but also some of the bigger things. <laughs> it's so true. Well, especially those people who go the do-it-yourself route because they see all these these ads on Facebook and everything, and they think that they 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 automatically instantly become web designers, and then they have to hire yeah. people like you and I to fix it. Um, so it's uh, it's called ten stupid things yeah. people do to they mess up just their websites. Ten stupid things, right? I'm writing. Put it, it put it in the email to me, and I'll send it <laughs> off to them. Yeah, it's fine. Right. Oh, great. And I put it down in the messages so that people can follow up to who are watching or may watch the replay. Let's switch gears just a little bit because, you know, we could talk obviously all day about just websites and um, I know you have things to do and I really appreciate the fact that you gave me your time twice. So let's talk about your book, Capture the Mindshare and the Market Share Will Follow. I, first of all, I love that title, The Art and Science in Building Brands. What do you mean when you say that people have there to capture the mind share. <laughs> yes, thank you for holding it up. Oh, thank you. Beautiful. beautiful. I love the cover. <laughs> um, and great colors too. Um, what do you what do you mean when you say capture people have to capture the well, mind here's share the of thing. their customers? As human beings, the way we are biologically hardwired, and I won't go into fight and fight or flight and all of that, but but we we are wired to survive. We look for familiarity and comfort because it's mm -hmm. safer. 
So that means for us as human beings, we feel first and we think second. We feel first, we think second. Most of us think we make all sorts of rational and logical buying decisions, but we don't. Often they are led by emotion. So simply as human beings, you've got to make that connection with another person on a, on a heart head level, both. You've got to address both aspects of that before they're going to think to buy, before they're going to click, before they're going to you know, do whatever you want them to do. You certainly want that call to action. So they do something with the connection that you've made, but you can't overlook the human emotional connection that they need. If you feel scary or off-putting or indifferent, they'll tend to go away. And the same thing with your website. If it's confusing or cluttered or they don't get how they fit in, they will go away from there. They'll bounce, as it's called. So you want to think about capturing that, mm -hmm. that mind share. Once you do that, you can begin to address all the pieces of your business. I mean, it's the same. We're talking about websites. Same thing. You want that to be inviting in whatever way speaks to your audience. Cutting edge, hip, you know, in your face, soft and warm, fuzzy, creative, whatever it is with the people you're trying to capture. And they say, oh, Heidi Richards. Yeah. Oh, I need to. I want to know more. And they go deeper. They sort of spiral into your site. It's the same as a human being. You have that first connection or contact. And they say, wow, oh, this is a conversation I could continue. Let's go further. And that's all part of the buying process. I mean, anybody that's done even any basic marketing knows it's depending on who, what stat you hear. It's three touches, 10, 12 touches or, you know, connection points before you get somebody to the point of purchasing or even, you know, wanting something free from you. We don't have time for right. another newsletter or email or video series. Even if people are giving it away, you need to establish that connection. And, and often timing is part of that. So it's not, you don't just try one time. You make things available in different ways at different times in different packages so that eventually people recognize and say, there was someone, I, I took a speaker program and it was someone whose newsletter I had followed for 10 years before I ever bought her program. And then there was a point I thought, oh, I need this now. And, and I bought and I purchased. And she said to me, oh, it's about time. You know, I mean, she's kidding. Um, <laughs> but it's true. I've had people join my organization yeah. that have been on my list for 10, 11 years. And all right. of a sudden, now they're starting to join. A part of it's because we redesigned the site, made it more modern. But I think the other part is just, right. you know, timing right. is everything with everybody. You know, one uh, what, what of my, my key indicators that I try to get people to understand when they're when they're looking at their website, say for their analytics. If a person comes to your site and stays and leaves right away, there's two things that are happening. One thing is that you're just not the right person or they just didn't find what they're looking for. So what you have to look for is how long they last, stay on your website. If they're on your homepage for you know several seconds and then they go to other pages, mm -hmm. you probably are doing it right. If they stay on homepage for a while and don't go to any other pages, then there's something missing on the homepage that doesn't lead them through a process to go to other, you know, to visit other pages. So I tell people if if, a, if somebody visits two or three pages of your site, that means your homepage yes. is probably doing okay. If on the other hand, they don't go to any page other than your homepage, you're, you know, it's like I said, the first thing, either that's not what they were looking for, or they just didn't see how you could be a benefit, they could be a 
and if benefit you can't, from your services. You, you so, want them to go um, away. You don't want to no. engage. You don't want to have multiple conversations. That's a time waster on both sides. You'd rather they go find what they need elsewhere. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk more about the, um, the book. And in, in your book, you talk about seven core mindshare methods that are critical to having a successful brand. I don't know if we have time, but if we do, I'd love for you to share them with do us, that. even just well, a brief first outline. Is to is to clarify. Everything to me starts with clarity. So that in what we're talking about is, is clarify the benefit for your customer. You know, we got to clarify our vision. We've got to do that. But you want to be very clear to your customer. Second is to commit. And that's committing to the value that you're offering, that you're promising, that you're going to deliver on that over time. It's one, that's one thing people forget about in the brand discussion. They think it's you know who you are, what you have, what you look like, but they forget that a successful brand is about ongoing servicing. It's ongoing value over time. Collaboration is a huge part. This is what we're talking about. You got to talk to your your people. You got to know what they want. You got to be listening. In some cases, you've got to know what they they need, even if they don't want it, or what you think they're going to want next. You want to stay a step ahead if you want to continue to work with them and help push their progress along. Competition. You've got to compete. And this is one thing that sometimes people will say. Well, you know, there's there's nobody quite like me. I do my own thing. What? Yes and no. First of all, there's probably somebody who offers what all of us offer. And there's certainly the invisible competition of fear, doubt, and inertia. People that say, oh, I can't spend the money, or oh, I'm not ready now, or oh, gee, it seems like a lot of work. So you've got to be prepared to compete on those levels. And one little tool that I learned not too long ago uh, that um, is that simply ask if you're, if you're selling, if you're in that selling cycle, and somebody's not sure, they don't know if they're ready to buy, ask them, you know, where are you on a one to 10 scale? If one is nah, not for me, 10 is yay, I'm, I'm purchasing. And they say, well, gee, I'm an eight. Well, well, tell me what it would take to get you to a 10. You know, what's in your way? And find out, it's that pretty straightforward conversation. So you can find out, hey, well, let me see if I can address that. Oh, it's fear? Well, gee, did I tell you about the money back guarantee or the 30 days or you know, those sorts of things. So you can address that as part of the objection and that it really is competition. And finally, you know, it's all about communication. It's clarity and confidence. Practice, practice, practice. Get to the point where you could talk about, and, and you and I have been doing this for a while. So we, you know, we've got our messages down, even though that there, there are always new ones. But you need to be in a mastermind group. You need to work with a coach. You need to get that communication so clear and sharp that you don't miss opportunities. You need to feel so good about what you're saying that it rolls off the tongue with a kind of a power and authority that other people hear and feel. I worked with a woman recently who was a, an energy coach. Now, when she said that, I knew what she meant, but it's like, well, are you in gas and oil? Are you in you know, physical fitness? It's kind of you, you didn't know, uh, but it was it was the the fitness creative. I help people get unblocked, and it was very abstract and mushy sounding. And she was not closing the business that she wanted. And right. pretty soon we worked on that. You know, people call it elevator pitch. I think of it as your value statement, your USP. She really nailed it down to. Well, you know, I really work with artists and I help them remove fears and blocks. And that was really what she did and did well. 
So she honed that statement. And then she told me later she'd gone to a, a work event for her husband's job. And they were there, cocktail party. You know, you always get the what do you do question. Everybody should be prepared for that one because it's coming. And she got that question and she said, well, I'm an energy coach. I help people remove blocks and fears so that they can fulfill their creative dreams. I work with authors and artists and blah, blah, blah. And it rolled off her tongue and her husband pulled her aside and said, whoa, where did that come from? And she had taken the time, the energy and the magic. She wrote it down. She wrote it down. She practiced it. She recorded it. She did all those things that you need to do to get that level of clarity and to build that confidence so that it just rang with the people that were listening. So that's important, I think. And, and you know what? All of these, every one of these are important, but I agree with you. I love that. What do you, how to answer the what do you do at, uh, say, for instance, networking events. If you can, if you can, uh, if, if people can articulate that well enough that people understand without, it's okay to ask follow-up questions, but if they understand, yeah. then they know what questions to ask. If they don't, they may or may not say, what does that mean? Some people will just walk away confused and be fuddled. Yeah, Others be might say, oh, what do you mean by that? You know, dumb, or they don't, you know, they're not with it. They're not up to speed. And my rule right. of thumb is, yeah. is always, if you can be clear and clever, knock yourself out. If you can only be one of those things, it's clarity every time. That trumps cleverness, cuteness, humor, everything. Because you can't afford to confuse people. You want it to be so clear that you're, you know, 90-year-old grandma and your nine-year-old nephew both get what you do, even if they don't understand the nuances or the textures, but they get, oh, you're a coach. Oh, so you go into workplaces and you help people get better at their jobs. Yeah, basically that's it. They got it. I like that. If so, if you, if you, and I think I've heard that in other ways, whether about clear and clever, to sure. can only be one, be clear. <laughs> That's so true. So, so true. So, um, what one bit of advice would you like to share with our audience that perhaps oh, um, we didn't talk well, about? Well, I'll give yet? you my three, my three steps for success. This is big picture, but it really fits everybody. And I, I started using this sort of mantra because I work across so many industries. And so I'm not an expert in gas and oil, in technology, in you know, I'm entertainment. Yeah, you could claim that. But so when it comes to people and performance, clarify the vision. Think a year to 18 months out. Yes, if you're Honda, you may want to think five or 10 or 20 years out. But you and I know where you want to be a year from today, 18 months from today. Next, figure out the simplest path to get there. What gets you there with a minimum of distractions and a maximum of support? And then finally, what's going to make you execute that plan? What is going to get you started down that path? For example, I'm not an exercise nut, but I'm committed to four strength training things per week. One of the things I do, I'm also on the frugal side, so I won't pay for a trainer four times a week. But one of those times is a trainer. I pay a month in advance. And I get a text message saying, hey, well, I see you at nine on Saturday morning. And yes, I, so I do that. And the other is I just know when I've got a 4.30 slot, I go to the gym. That's it. That is my best time of day. If I don't have a 4.30 slot, I take a long walk at, you know, 3 or 5.30 or whatever. But I keep my gym clothes by the door. My shoes are always there. I got no excuses in my face. 
So it's setting yourself up for success so that whatever holds you accountable, my calendar is the other thing. If it's on the calendar, I am more likely to do it. And you need to find what manages you and really simplify that vision, uh, simplify, I mean, clarify the vision, simplify the path and execute the plan. That's what gets people that magic of, oh, I see where I should go, but I'm not going. And we tend to default on one side or the other, either we're the dreamer, big vision person, or we're the do, 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 we get it all done, but we don't always stop to think where we're going. When you put those two together, that's when you really get somewhere in a purposeful and steady way. Excellent advice. I mean, the, the, the example you give of, of, of exercising is probably something that many people, especially when you're an entrepreneur, you we take time for everything but ourselves quite often. So uh, we always find mm -hmm. the time to do the things right. we want to do. Let's put it that way. So putting off those other things becomes easier to do, but not necessarily are they good for us. So I think that having that that three-step system is really important. So thank you. Um, so where do you get your creative ideas? In other words, what is the process that you use for coming up with ideas for your business? Wow. And those a lot of, of ideas clients? come from my clients. As I said, I like to have a lot of conversations with people. I offer them strategy sessions so I can hear what's happening in their world. And it's so varied. You know, I've done everything from tour, a, a nuclear enrichment plant to seeing a hospital that got this design award. You know, so I ideas are, are everywhere. Um, my kids, I have two millennial young adult men who uh, definitely are always throwing new ideas at me. And um, it's just being out in the world. I, as much as I love sitting in my little uh, office and feeling, you know, warm and cozy and doing my thing, I got to get out and get out there. And today I talked to somebody in a, in a manufacturing company. I talked to somebody else who works in a financial services company. And it's, I think asking thoughtful questions and then kind of shutting up and listening is probably the best way to get ideas. Absolutely listening. And I love the fact that you mentioned about earlier mm -hmm. about masterminds and coaching. Uh, also good ways to because that ex, that other person can see things differently than we do, um, whether it be one or 10 in the group. It doesn't really matter. Um, but I agree. I think that that's a. Uh, Key, key. Well, I so just embarked on a whole new adventure. And like I said, you know, that one year vision, I tend to come up with one new initiative every year. And I find that's really all I can handle, whether it's a book or changing my whole speaking program. And this year, uh, although the research started further back, but it is launching an online academy. So I've got something called Career Success Academy. And you can go to my website and just click on the academy button. And it is, to me, it's kind of the best of both worlds because it is a small mastermind group with live calls. And then I've harnessed technology for videos and audios and downloads. And it's, it's great fun. And people are so, you know, people come into small groups of strangers and they have this sort of fearful, you know, are, what am I gonna get? What do they be like? How am I gonna fit in? And I find most people are not that yeah, I'm not a Pollyanna, but I most people are surprisingly gracious and giving. And I've got this little group of strangers who are all offering ideas to one another, and it's it's really beautiful. And it's all about career acceleration. So it's starting from where are you now? Where do you want to go? And how do we get you there faster and with more support and fun? 
So that's that's my thing, and I love it. If anybody's interested, just shoot me an email, and I'll I'll give you the test drive. Excellent, and I wrote it over in the messages too to go to libbygill.com or email libby at libbygill.com, okay. and uh, we'll get that again at the end. Okay. Uh, hold your book out one more time and tell us. Oh, uh, you can go to my website and go how to we Amazon can get a copy. And just look up my name or go to my website libbygill.com. And another fun thing I've got, Heidi, that people can go do, and this is also something new for me. I'm, I'm not a technophobe. I'm not nearly as technical as you are, but I'm, I'm embracing it in a much bigger way, really, so I can, so I can, I can, this sounds so corny, but I can serve more people. Because not, frankly, what the corporate world, you know, I can go to Viacom right. and they'll pay me a nice salary to come in and do six months of coaching. But a lot of, of entrepreneurs can't make that investment. And I don't blame them. So I've got smaller groups and I can carve things up in different ways. But there's an assessment that really can start your thinking, really simple and fun. And it's called careersuccessassessment.com. Now, anybody that fills that out, it's going to give you a benchmark, careersuccessassessment.com, lots of S's. And it will show you, and it's a self-assessment, sort of where you are and how you feel about your own progress and satisfaction. And for, for some, if they're interested, it goes links back to me and they'll get a strategy session, which is sort of a mini consultation. So it's, a, it's, it's my way of learning what's happening out in the world, what are people challenged with, who wants what I have to offer. I mean, full disclosure, transparency, there's something in it for me, obviously, or I wouldn't be doing it, but there's no cost to them. And they certainly don't have to take me up on a strategy session if they don't want it. But it's given me a a peek into people's businesses, their lives in all sorts of different uh, different workplace scenarios. So I can really craft the next year or two years of programs that, that I'm making sure I'm creating not just what I want, but from what people want from me, which is where we started this discussion. Oh, absolutely. I would agree. And I love that. You know, it's funny because the last couple of guests that I've had have talked a lot about surveying and assessments more so than i think in the past and i think that we really do miss the mark when it comes to assessments sometimes people forget the value that not only the self-assessments mm -hmm. but assessing your clients too you might have a little questionnaire whatever you want to call it um right. but that's really the only way you can find out about people mm -hmm. you know and then mm -hmm. read what they have to say obviously um I have a couple of questions besides what we've talked about in the past. So for instance, what is your, in addition to your own website, what is your favorite oh, website um, online hmm. website? I'm not, I'm not you sure. have one. You can have more than I'm one. I'm not sure that I, I do. I'd have to think about that. They're probably, I'll tell you <laughs> one that's, it's a newsletter. I'm sure it's a website, but I love something called smart briefs and you can just go to, yeah, Smart Brief has Oh, I love Smart Brief. Smart Brief yes. has newsletters about in about a dozen different categories. And you can absolutely be inundated if you choose to, but I tap into the Smart Brief for entrepreneurs, for leadership and for careers, and that's kind of a regular that's a it's like a daily briefing and it really gives great articles. I love Smart Briefs cuz you can get an education at, at kind of a glance. Um so that's a lot of fun. It, it, yeah, and they're encapsulated as opposed to having to read these long. You know, it's funny. You mentioned Smart Briefs, and I've, I've been a subscriber for years. But I said to my husband last week or last month that I really love huh. 
miss the Reader's Digest because I used to love to read it because it always had such interesting, fun things. So what does he do? Now I get it. He subscribed. And it's really small compared to what it used to be. And of course, you can go online, but I love to read. And if I go someplace, I want to have something I can read. I don't like reading books online. Kindles are, you know, I, I'll read some if they're really short, but I prefer to hold it still. I, my generation, I guess. Um, and so Smart Briefs is a lot like the Reader's Digest version of business. Uh, another or one, of other, another other other I like Harvard Business Review. Um, so. I always find great, great studies. I like, I oh, like yeah. to follow some, uh, not to sound too lofty, but I like to follow some neuroscience studies about the workplace. Um, there's another one I love. What's the name of there? It's O.C. Tanner is a work. O.C. Tanner is a research, a workplace research company. They've been around for nearly 100 years and they have great blogs and podcasts. Oh, and of course, then there are the TED Talks. Who doesn't love TED Talks? Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you answered all my questions. <laughs> I'm writing it down because I haven't I haven't looked at Harvard Business in a long time, so that's really good. Um, so Libby, last question before I have you repeat your contact <gasps> oh, information. Oh, I'm a good one having fun, especially the older I get. I'm in the fun stage of life. Um, I have a lovely significant other, and we are sort of food and wine nuts. So we we travel for uh, wine destinations and love to tour wineries. I've got my two young guys and my older son is studying international education management. So he's either always in, you know, he's in one country or another and I love to visit him. And my younger son as well is uh, at Oberlin College studying literature. I'm a big reader and my personal, uh, I, I set one personal and one business initiative each year. And last year it was to write my first novel and I'm just creeping up on about 275 pages now. I'm a, a little behind my deadline, but again, oh. Heidi, it was like set yourself up for success. I took a class because I knew that would make me start off with 50 pages. I skipped the first two levels, started at level three, pulled a little group of people out of the class. We've been together as a writing group for a year now, and uh, and and that's that's fun. It's work, but it's fun. So that I'm committed to, and you know, I'd say gardening. Except if I looked at my garden right now, uh, I'd be lying. So. Um, and I like to I like to hike in our local mountains. That's a fun thing to do too. About once a week we do that. Oh, that's so wonderful. Libby, it is always a pleasure to chat with you. You're you're just amazing. And I thank you again for taking time out of your busy week and spending your hour with us today. And uh, again, will you just, just tell everybody to how to get a hold of you the best com, way? L-I-B-B-Y-G-I-L-L. -L, and there's all my contact information is there. If anybody, something sparked with you, but you can't quite remember, just shoot me an email or pick up the phone. It's all right there. I'd love for people to participate in my strategy sessions. It just, it helps with my education. And, uh, and if I can give them some career advice at the same time, I feel like after Ah, 30 years. I've kind of seen and done a little bit of, of just about all of it. So I'm happy to pass on any knowledge that's helpful. Excellent. Thank you again, Libby. And thank you all for joining us again. Uh, Heidi Richards Mooney, founder of Women in E-Commerce and publisher of We Magazine for Women and, of course, the host of the Entrepreneur Show. I just want to briefly mention our next show is with Valerie Hubbard, and it's on Wednesday, February 17th. She will be talking about the Actors Fast Track. 
And so she is an actor's coach. She's an actress. She's been on a lot of shows, Castle and a bunch of television shows. And um, one of my other uh, guests sent me several of her clients to be on this show. And I'm very excited because the diversity of the of the guests that we have. I mean, I, I feel so excited to have people of your caliber, uh, Libby. And I think that maybe you'll want to meet Valerie because you guys may have a lot in common because you both worked in, you know, the, in the media in a different way than, than most of us get the opportunity to. So again, we've had a, a great time with Libby Gill, LibbyGill.com. And uh, thank you all for being with us today. Libby, take care. Bye-bye.